What I'd like to do, for the sake of those who weren't with us, let's rebuild that, those five points. We're kind of connecting five points. In order to get more out of the temple, let's just see if we can connect to five doctrinal truths that'll help us understand a little bit more of the temple ordinance. We are, we're starting with the initiatory. We're going to go through the initiatory, into the endowment, and then to a ceiling room. And point number one, we saw that the bulk of temple ordinances are pushing us from terrestrial to celestial. This journey through mortality is a journey through the telestial world, and then you leave the telestial room. Now, in the Salt Lake Temple, you physically do that, right? You physically leave the telestial room and go into a terrestrial room. Symbolically, what are you supposed to leave behind? You cannot go into a terrestrial room holding on to any celestial things. You either let go of them or what's the alternative? You stay in the celestial room. So that typically has happened outside of the temple. Those are, those are chapel ordinances. In the ancient temple, that's what happened out in the courtyard with the law of sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice. Then we come into the main part of the temple. We are going from the terrestrial room into the celestial room. Most of the ordinances are focused on helping us let go of what's terrestrial and get into the celestial, enter the Father's presence in the celestial. Now, most of that change doesn't happen outwardly. You cannot see that change because where do we change from terrestrial to celestial? Inwardly. Almost every ordinance of the temple is pointing at an inner change. So think about how were we washed in the chapel? My whole body went into a large baptismal font and I watched the whole outward thing, right? How are we washed in the temple? Very inwardly. So point number one is all of these ordinances are pointing from terrestrial to celestial. That's the, the, the bulk of our temple ordinances, pushing to let go of the terrestrial. So look for what is the inner change that this ordinance is asking me to perform. Okay, then this, another bullet point we talked about is that an ordinance has a covenant and a token. All ordinances really have tokens associated with them. It's a token and a covenant. And the Lord is a master at teaching and doesn't use a lot of words. When we are baptized, where's the baptismal covenant? Where are the words of the covenant stated in a baptism? If I perform the ordinance, I say, I, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Did you hear any words of the covenant that that person is making? So where are the words of the covenant? They're not there, right? So we look to understand the covenant in the token. So what's the token of baptism? Burial. There is something you're promising to kill and bury. 
Like in the Old Testament where they sacrificed the animal inside them, you are promising to kill the natural man. There's the covenant. I am promising to bury my natural man, to crucify my natural man and come up a new person like Jesus. So every time there's an ordinance in the temple, what is going to teach you what you're covenanting? The token. The token is the Lord's sermon on what the covenant is. So learn to see in the token what the covenant is. The third bullet point we talked about is that, do you remember when the Lord commanded the building of a temple, he used three words, organize, prepare, establish. And then when we dedicated the Kirtland temple, the Lord uses those same words, but what did he do to the words? He turned them around. He said, if you organize, then what was the language in the dedicatory prayer? You will be organized. If you prepare, you will be prepared. If you establish, he will establish you. So there is implied in every temple ordinance, in every covenant, uh, I'm going to do something and you're going to do something. So if I go into the initiatory and I'm being washed, what's implied? He's not going to say it. He's implying it in all of these. What's implied in him washing me? An invitation to wash myself. So if you are being washed, it's an invitation to wash yourself. If you're being anointed, it's an invitation to be anointed, to anoint yourself. If you're being clothed, it's an invitation to clothe yourself. That we saw in the command to build the temple and the dedicatory prayer. So I'm just going to simply say prepare. And then he says, be prepared. So if I'm being washed, he's asking me to wash. So terrestrial to celestial interchange, watch for the token and know that if I'm being something, he's asking me to do that. So we did washing. Well, let's do the other two. The other one is, do you remember when Eve partook of the forbidden fruit? Do you remember the, progr the, progr the progression of the sin? It started in her eyes, hands, feet. It went from her eyes to her head. She saw, it became pleasant, and then she desired. And then she took, very different use of my hands, now I'm taking, and then she ate. And so we kind of are going to see in the temple the reversal of that. Tell me what chapel ordinances are inviting. Baptism, sacrament, is saying get sin out of your hands, your feet. Stop going. Stop touching, stop clicking, stop saying. Get sin out of your hands. Now, as we work to reverse that, where are we going to end up? 
the terrestrial go to celestial is going to say, get sin out of your heart, your head, and if you can, your eyes. So what's the very first thing we do in a temple? When you went to the temple for the very first time, you washed your eyes, your ears, you washed your mouth, you washed your heart. Now, do you see the symbolism? What's he saying? I'm washing your eyes. I'd like to wash what you see. I would like to wash your eyes so that you see marvelous things. But what's going to allow God to show me marvelous things? What have I done? I've washed what I look at. Do you see the inner? Do you see the token? Do you see the be prepared? All of these things are coming together in the temple. So the first thing he does is he washes my eyes which is an invitation for me to wash my eyes. When you were washed in the temple, implied in the covenant, was that you promised God you would wash what you look at. You promised to wash what you look at. And because you're doing that, he's now going to wash what you see. You see the beauty of the temple? So we're going to do that today with anointing. So this was eyes. We're going to go in reverse order. Eyes, mind, heart, hands. And one more, if the symbolism of baptism is the death of the natural man, and we talk a great deal in the church about being born again, right? Isn't that what baptism is, is a process of being born again? So symbolically, when I come out of the chapel and I go into the temple, what am I? This is, spiritually speaking, a reborn person, right? Born again. Killed the natural man. Has come out a new person. Isn't this the symbol of being born again? Now, what's the very first thing you would do to that child? Wash him. So the very first thing that happens in the temple is we're washed. Because that's what you do to a newborn baby. You wash the newborn baby. Now, that was last week. We talked about washing. Now, tell me if this were Simba, what happens next? He's cleaned up and then anointed. Because who is this? This is the king. This is a future king. He is being anointed to be king. Now, that'll be our subject tonight, anointings. But I want to just kind of simply, the symbolism here 
is a baby being washed and then anointed. And then what do you do to that baby? What do you do to this baby after you've washed him? You clothe him. So what happens in our initiatory? Washed, anointed, clothed, and then what do you do to the baby? You name him. So do you see the process? Do you see as we come into the temple, as we come into our covenants, there's washing covenants, there's clothing covenants, anointing covenants. It's exactly what we, we are a baby coming into the Father's presence. Now, did you remember, you, did you catch that one word? Go back to section 109, Doctrine and Covenants section 109. We used this when we were looking at the prepare, be prepared, organize, be organized, establish, be, ab, be established. So go back to that verse 15. Remember when we saw, this is where we saw be organized. So section 88, organize. Section 109, be organized. Section 88, be or prepare. Section 109, be prepared. That's where we made that connection. But look at the first part of 15. Come, come into the temple to do what? Why are we building the Kirtland Temple? Why do we build temples? So that we can grow up. Do you see the imagery? We are reborn. We come into the temple, we're washed, anointed, and clothed. So it shouldn't surprise you, for example, go to Exodus 40. It shouldn't surprise you to find references to that in ancient temples. Go to Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, when the Lord is talking about the temple. What words do you find in Exodus 40? Aaron needs to be washed and then thou shalt put upon him holy garments and anointing him in order to go into the temple that's the imagery wash anoint clothe just like a baby is washed anointed and clothed so we can grow up in the lord you see that imagery just one more let's go to section 124 the command to build the nauvoo temple Doctrine and Covenant section 124 is where the Lord commands the Nauvoo Temple. And he says, let me tell you why we need to build this temple. And notice the words he used. First of all, look at verse 28. What do we find in the temple? There is not a place found on earth that he may come and re restore that which was lost. So what was lost? During the apostasy, what was lost? The fullness of the priesthood. So how do we obtain the fullness of that priesthood? Look at verse 37. I've got to flip the page again. Verily I say unto you, how shall your washings be acceptable unto me? What else do we do in the temple? Look at verse 39. The Lord calls for a temple so that we can do what? Wash, anoint, and later on he's going to talk about clothing. Do you see all the imagery? 
Okay, so put those four pieces together. Let me remind you. Inward change to become celestial. Look for the inward change. Look for the token. The token will reveal the covenant. There's always that dual nature. What he's doing to me, I'm being invited to do myself. So today he wants to anoint me. But implied in that is what? That I have anointed myself. And that's probably something you've never thought about. How do you anoint yourself so that he anoints you? And then remember, watch, we're going to go eyes, head, heart. So what are we going to anoint? We're going to anoint eyes, head, heart, hands. And just like that Simba. So why did they, why did they anoint Simba? Tell me why they anointed Simba. We just saw, we just watched the coronation of a king in England. He was anointed at some point in the coronation. But when was King Charles first anointed? Anyone know? He was anointed the day he was born. Charles was anointed the day he was born. Why? Why was he anointed that day? He didn't become king until what? Two Sundays ago? Why was he anointed when he was born? Now you're going to start to recognize these, language, this, these, word, these words. Why was he anointed at birth? This is all his birth, right? Because this person, what was the anointing saying? Tell me why they anointed Simba. So tell me what the anointing is trying to say. To whom are they speaking? To whom was Rafiki speaking? He was speaking to Simba. What was he saying to Simba? Act differently. Act differently because why? You have a responsibility. But who else was he speaking to? Everyone else. What was he saying? What was that anointing saying? You take care of this one. This one is special. This one has blessings and responsibilities. If you mess with Simba, who did you mess with? The king. So we go into the temple and after we're washed, he anoints me as an infant, infant, to become a king or a queen. I was anointed in my infancy to become a queen. Now, why? What is he saying to me when he anointed me? Act differently. You are to be king or queen. Act in such a way that they respect the kingdom. And what else was he saying? When the Lord anointed you, what was he saying to everyone else? This one is mine. By him anointing you, what was he saying to the whole world? You mess with that one, 
You mess with me. This one is marked. Now, let's talk, see the symbolism. I know we use fancy words like anoint, but give me a synonym. What is that? It's a mark. Now let's play with that word. Let's, let's see if we can open up the scriptures and talk about when was Israel saved because they put a mark on themselves. Now going back to this dual nature, if you put a mark on you, I will put my mark on you. Do you think of a time when Israel was saved by a mark? For thousands of years, it's been celebrated as Passover. Now, what was their marking? What were they asked to do? You put the blood on the forehead of your house. You mark yourself with Jesus. You pick up Christ and you put him on you. Now, those who did, what did he do? Tell me what he did. Why is it called Passover? Because he put a, he put a mark on them so that the destroying angel came and saw that mark and did what? Passed over. So they put the blood on them and he marked them for protection. Do you see anointing in that? It's the same idea. You put a mark on yourself so that he puts a mark on you. And that becomes a very common theme in the scriptures. Turn to Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel was a prophet of the captivity. Just like Nephi, or just like Daniel, Ezekiel was taken captive into Babylon. He was a, he was a prophet of the captivity. When Israel was slaughtered. Now, was everyone slaughtered when Israel was slaughtered? No, because we know of Lehi and Nephi going to America. So did God spare some of them when the Babylonians came in and slaughtered them? How did the destroying angels know which ones to destroy? Go to Ezekiel chapter 9, Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 9. So, right as the, this is symbolic of the Babylonians coming in. So, verse 1, he cried in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man his slaughter weapon. This is powerful imagery. Six people with slaughter weapons in their hand gather around Jerusalem. And now we need one more. And one man among them was clothed with linen with a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the Lord was there and came up out of the, so the Lord, the, the Lord's there. Now verse four, what does he say? The Lord said unto him, who has the inkhorn, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark 
upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abominations that be done in the midst of them. So what's happening in the temple? Put a mark on all the righteous. Put a mark on their forehead. And then he says to the destroying angels, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children. Now, why a little children wouldn't have a mark? It's a subject for another day. Don't worry about children. They'll be protected with the mark. And, but, but what? Go slaughter, but what? What does he say? But come not near any man, woman, or child upon whom is... The mark. Do you see the temple? Do you see the anointing? You walk into his house and he puts a big mark on your forehead. And then he says to all the destroying angels, uh-uh, not these. Not this one. This one is marked for my blessing and protected. One more time. Can you name? So saved by a mark in Passover, saved by a mark when the Babylonians came, the whole point of our day is to put marks on the foreheads of the righteous. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. New Testament this time. Let's go to Revelation 7. This is now our day. This is the sixth seal. This is the work of our day. Now this time, instead of six angels, how many angels are holding back the destruction? Now, a little symbolism. This, this, the number four is the symbol of the earth. Four quarters of the earth, four directions, four elements. Every time you see four, it means it's worldwide. So now there are four angels holding back the destruction. So how big is the destruction going to be? Not Jerusalem. The whole world. This is the second coming. And four angels are holding back the destruction. Now, there comes another angel, and what does he have in his hand? The seal of the living God. Now, what does that mean? How, in that day, what does it mean to have a seal? You go in to get something notarized, they stamp it. But what was a seal in those days? It was a ring. You drip wax and put your imprint in it. It was sealed, right? So symbolically, this is an angel that has God's mark. And he says to put it where? Put it, they're going to put it in their foreheads. He says in verse 3, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Symbolically speaking, what is God doing today everywhere? Those who are righteous and pick up the atonement and pick up Jesus and mark themselves with Christ are being marked by God to be protected. Do you see the symbolism? 
Now, do you see why I want him to mark me? If he marks me, then passed over. Now, when the destruction comes, go to Revelation 9. That's the chapter when the destruction actually is poured out. Look at verse 4. To whom or who is told for them not to destroy. Revelation chapter 9, verse 4. The destroying element that comes out is commanded what? What are they told? It was commanded then that they should hurt not the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead. So do you see the symbolism of, I want God to mark me. Just like Simba was marked. Just like Israel was marked. I want to be marked, anointed by God. But what does that mean? What's the covenant? Let's put these two together. In order for him to mark me, what has to happen? I have to mark me. I, in Israel, how, what did they do? In order to get passed over, they had to mark themselves. Your covenant, when you were anointed in the temple, you made a covenant. I am going to mark myself with Jesus. So where did you put that mark? In your mind. How do you live that? How do you live that covenant every day? Today, how are you going to live that covenant? How do you mark your thoughts? You think about Jesus. What you think about is the mark you put on yourself. That's how we live the covenant. What do you look at? What do you love? If Jesus fills your heart, if you are filling your heart with Christ, what are you doing? I'm putting his mark on me. And if I've put my mark on me, what is he going to do? And here comes the destruction. Do you see the symbol? Do you see the covenant? Now, Book of Mormon, written for our day, right? Bible loses plain and precious things. Let me just kind of show you an interesting twist on this, because there's not only one mark in the Scriptures. In the book of Revelation, there's another mark, right? Do you remember, do you think of some other mark in the forehead? We're trying to seal the righteous in the forehead. But what's happening simultaneously? Go to chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13. Someday let's do a Revelation class and we can see all these images and we'll just see how they relate to temple. But go to Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1, he sees, notice the JST change. He sees a beast rise up out of the sea. Check your footnote. What does the beast represent? In the image of the world. 
So take every telestial, terrestrial thing and personify it into a beast. The beast is the telestial world, the terrestrial world. Now, verse 7, tell me what the beast wants to do. What is the goal of the beast? A very real problem in your life. What's the goal of the beast? The telestial monster wants to destroy you. So how does he do it? Go to verse 16 and 17. Tell me what the beast is trying to do. He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. The mark of the beast. Now, if you don't have that mark, remember, if you have Jesus's mark in your forehead, then Jesus marks you for protection. If you have the beast's mark in your forehead, then then what? You can play in his playground. You're cool. You're, 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 you're in the club. But if you don't have the mark of the beast, tell me that's not our society. You live in this day where if you do not wear the world's mark, what does the world do to you? You can't play in their playground. Go to Hollywood, try to be an actor or an actress, and be really conservative. What's going to happen in Hollywood? You can't play in their playground unless you do what? Wear their images. This is what the world is doing. So while God is trying to put a mark in your forehead, the world is trying to put a mark in your forehead. And if you have the world's mark, then whose protection, who passes over you? Who protects you? The world will protect you. Or so they say. Does that ever really happen? Do you see the company? Do you see what's competing in our lives right now? This is every day. So here's the beauty of the Book of Mormon. Does the Book of Mormon pick up this story? Does the Book of Mormon have a story to tell about marks in the forehead? Yes. Turn to Alma chapter 2. Amlicite. The Amlicites. Do you remember that little, the beautiful little story? Man, did Mormons see our day. The Amlicites. Go to Alma chapter 2. We've got to tell this Book of Mormon story. It's such a great story. And I, I bet you most people don't connect it with the temple, but we've got to connect it with the temple. All right, Alma 2. All right, ready? Uh, let me pull up this version so we can just... This one's already marked. Alma 2. Okay, verse 1. There was a man among the Nephites who wanted to be king. That was a common theme, right? Can you think of someone else who wanted to be king and wasn't chosen? Very common theme. 
Amosai wants to be king. He drew away much people after him, and they wanted Amosai to be their king. So there was a vote taken, and it didn't go well for him. The voice of the people came against Amosai that he was not made their king. So that means the majority of the Nephites are not Amosites, right? The Amlicites are a minority. So once they reject Amlicite, the people who loved Amlicite consecrate him to be their king. They apostatize from the Nephites, make their own community, and they make Amlicite their king. Now, what's the very first king command of King Amlicite? <laughs> go attack him. How's that going to go? Who's bigger? Who's stronger? It's not going to go well, right? So the first command of King Amlicite is go attack. So do the Nephites and the Lamanites, or sorry, do the Nephites and the Amlicites know each other? Do you think they knew who was friend and foe in this little battle? Do Nephites recognize Amlicites? Do Amlicites recognize Nephites? Pretty clear, right? So the Amlicites get slaughtered and they run and Alma sends a spy to chase them and the spy comes running back, panicked because, because why? The Amlicites have joined with the Lamanites. Now we have a problem. Does anyone see the problem? The Amlicites have joined the Lamanites to battle against the Nephites. Does this, do anyone see it? Let me draw it. Amlicites and Nephites know each other, right? So over here, we've got Nephite, 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 Nephite. Over here, we have Lamanite mixed with Amlicite. Who sees the problem? Does this guy know the difference between friend and foe? Yeah, they, 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 they waged that war, right? Does this guy know the difference between friend and foe? What's the problem? The Lamanites don't know that. What's, the, what's this guy's problem? I don't know the difference between that guy and that guy. Now, who's that a problem for? The Amlicites. So somehow they have to send a message. What's the message they have to send? We're your team. This guy needs to tell this guy, I'm friend. That's foe, I'm friend. How do the Amlicites, who still look a lot like Nephites, how do they let the Lamanites know that they're on the Lamanites' team? Chapter 3, verse 4. Tell me what they do. Now, you need to see Temple and Book of Revelation. The Amlicites were distinguished from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads. Now, why red in the forehead? Why that mark? After the manner of the Lamanites, meaning who else had red in their forehead? Who didn't have red in their forehead? There it is. So do you see the symbolism? Tell me what the Amlicites were saying to the Lamanites 
when they put a mark on their forehead. Do you see it? Tell me what the Amlicites were saying to the Lamanites when they put the Lamanite mark on their forehead. We're on your team. Therefore, protect us. I have marked, why are you smiling? Do you see the symbolism? I have marked myself with your mark so that you bless me. Therefore, I think what the Book of Mormon is clarifying is God and the beast don't put their mark on you, do they? How does it get there? You put on the mark of the person whose blessing you are seeking. Everyone puts the mark on themselves of the team they're on. Whose blessing do you seek? You want the world to bless you? It's really simple. What do you do? You pick up the world's images and mark yourself. So what might we call amlicite marks? What might be an amlicite mark? What's a modern-day amlicite mark? If you decided today, I'm no longer a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you wanted to send the message to everyone that you've left the church, what would you do? What would you do? Okay, but what do you mean? So language. Language, okay, alcohol. Alcohol. Tattoos. Language. The way I dress. Boom, you're picking them up right away because why? Why, why do you know them so well? Because you see people you love doing what? Picking up the world's mark for, why are they doing it? I want the world to bless me. I want to be clothed in the world's protection. I want the world to accept me and pass over. Therefore, I'm putting the world's marks on. Now, the Book of Mormon is brilliant because it does the exact opposite. There's a group of Nephites who want to be known as Lamanites, so they pick up the marks of the Lamanites. Can you name another group in the Book of Mormon? Can you name a group of Lamanites who want to be known as Nephites? So what do they do? Turn to Alma 27, 27. I wish we had more to the story, but read Alma 27, 27. Someone read it out loud. Tell me what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. M Alma 27, 27. distinguished. So they picked up the Nephite marks and what did they do? They picked up the marks of Christ. 
So if you want his anointing so that he protects you, what must you do? You must anoint yourself with him. Alma in the Book of Mormon will say it this way. Have you received his image? Have you, have you marked yourself with him? Now, again, go to the token. I will be anointed in my forehead in the temple. That's him putting his mark on me. Now, what's the invitation? You want his mark on you, then you put your mark or you put his mark on you. How do I mark my forehead? I think about Jesus. I think about him. Every day of your life, the thoughts that fill your head are your choice of whose mark you're putting on. You get to decide who blesses you. If you anoint yourself by thinking of him, then he marks you. You see the anointing? My heart, my chest is going to be anointed. So what does that mean? What's the practical application? Do you love the things of God? Do the things of God fill your heart every day? Good days, bad days, do the things of God fill your heart? Are they in your head? Do you look at them? Do you click on them? Do you talk about them? Do you walk towards them? Does your back hold them up? You are choosing whose blessing you want by what you think, think about, talk about, look at. That's the anointing. And everyone who anoints themselves with Christ is anointed by him, marked, so that when the destroying angel comes, it passes you by. Why do we have oil put on our forehead when we're sick? I am seeking whose blessing? I am seeking that this sickness does what? passes over me. Give me your blessing. Mark me. But what's implied in putting that oil on my forehead? That I invite that marking by what do I think about? What do I talk about? Temple covenants live every day. They, we live them every single day. What we look at, what we listen to, what fills our mind, our heart, our tongue, our soul, 
if I am marking myself with Christ, then he will mark me for his blessings. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.